<laughs> kind of feel like I don't need to say anything. <laughs> that was excellent. Um, but preachers preach, so I'm going to. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 45. That's going to be pages 836 and 837. We get to move on to the next page today. So that's, that's pretty awesome. We're actually going to finish up Mark chapter 1 today. It only took us seven sermons, you know, and we have 15 more chapters to go. Don't be doing the math. I won't take 112 sermons to finish this thing up. Though, I have to be honest with you that I debated on splitting this passage up. You know, I I thought about it uh, for a while, but I didn't. And the reason why I didn't is because if I did, I was afraid we would lose something significant. In fact, I think uh, that we risk losing the main point of this entire section. Because I see it as one unit. I don't see it as three different sections. You've got three subheadings in your Bible there, right? I don't see it like that. I see it as one. And I'm going to explain that while we look through here. In looking at at the whole, we can see something unexpected sandwiched in the middle of, of two extraordinary events. And if we looked at them in sections, we would miss it altogether. But Mark has this way of pointing us to things that seem simple, they seem downright mundane, but in reality, that's the main point. That's everything. And so I want us to look at it as the whole. In reality, what, what seems like an ordinary mundane message is actually the main message, and it's greater than the amazing events that it's sandwiched between. It's a bit like finding out who the real Wizard of Oz is. Do you remember that movie? Right? Like the first time that Dorothy and the gang show up there in Oz and they get led out in front of the wizard, they see this, this huge, mystical, powerful, sort of domineering apparition, right? They don't even know what it is. Like it's kind of like green and, and sort of cloudy and boomy and it's just kind of, they're scared by it, right? They're kind of leaving like, whoa, what do we do here, you know? But when they returned, Toto showed him who the real wizard was. It wasn't this big figurehead, right? Instead, it was this miserly, cowardly man who was hiding behind a curtain. And you would think that in that they might be disappointed. The reality of the situation might have let them down, but in the end of the story, were any of them dissatisfied? Were any of them disheartened by the reality of who the wizard was? I mean, think about it. The scarecrow, was he disappointed when he received his brain from this ordinary man? What about the tin man? You think that he was disillusioned when this miserly old hermit gave him a heart? Or what about the lion when he received courage? Was he angry about that? Was he frustrated? Was Dorothy upset when she got to go home? No, the reality is something was significant. Their joy was actually uh, fulfilled in receiving the blessing from this hand and in seeing him for who he is, the reality of who he is, right? They were overwhelmed by it, and their perspective on the world was transformed. The way they spoke, the way they acted, the way they lived from that point on was dramatically different for seeing him as he really was. 
And that's what we're going to see today. Seeing Jesus for who he really is changes things. Life-changing power of Jesus is not found in signs and wonders and miracles that are performed, but in his nature and in his purposes and who he is and why he came. And that's the truth that I pray that God would lay upon our hearts today so that we might be changed by it. So we're going to pray, and then we'll read. Almighty and gracious God and Father, God, we pray that you give us eyes to see Jesus this morning. God, I pray that if we come here with any sort of uh, preconceived notions or expectations of what we might gain from Jesus because we're here, because we're doing our religious duty, I pray that we would lay those things down. God, I pray that you would open our eyes and you would open our hearts to see Jesus. That we might marvel in His nature. That we might marvel in His purpose, not in what He can do. God, I pray that we stand in amazement for sure, but in amazement in the right things and not the wrong things. So Lord, we pray by the power of Your Spirit, give us eyes to see this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So again, that's Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 45, page 836 and 37 in the Bibles in the chairs. It says, And immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought him, uh, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to him, Let's go to the, on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling down, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, saying, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And the people were coming to him from every quarter. First, we're going to begin with the obvious, right? First, it's clear from this passage that Jesus has the power to heal. I know you guys are thinking, wow, thank you for that, Chet. I didn't realize that. I've never read that before. Wow, thank you so much. But I, I don't want you to miss the significance of this in light of what we have already seen regarding Jesus' power and authority. Remember from verses 10 and 11? 
God Himself declares Jesus' authority by tearing open the heavens and by proclaiming that this is My Son in whom I am well pleased. God Himself testifies to Jesus' authority. In verses 16 and 20, Jesus called His first disciples. In that passage, we saw that Jesus had authority over people that He called and immediately they left everything and they followed Jesus. In verses 21 through 28, again, Jesus' power is displayed as He taught as one who had authority. Not like the religious leaders of the day. He taught with so much more power, so much more authority. He spoke as the words of God, as the voice of God Himself. And He does that because He's the Son of God, i.e. He is God. And we also see from the same passage that, that Jesus has the authority over evil spirits. That He commanded and instantly they were driven out. They could not stand against him. Jesus has the authority over demons. And here, Mark gives us an historical account to show us that Jesus has the authority over sickness and disease. And in light of the context, in light of the whole of Mark chapter 1, now we begin to see what it's all about. It's not that just that Jesus has the power to heal, but that Jesus has authority over all things. We don't stand in amazement because Peter's mother-in-law and the many and the leper are cured. We stand in amazement because Jesus is the authority over everything. He has the authority to teach. Authority over sickness and death. Authority over evil spirits. Authority over people. Authority given directly from God because He's God's Son. And if we miss this, we'll be just like the crowd will marvel in all the wrong things instead of the fact that Jesus has all authority. So in verse 29, immediately after Jesus had taught with authority and cast this demon out in the synagogue, he and the, and the four disciples made their way from the, the synagogue in Capernaum to Peter's house there in Capernaum, to Simon's house, and, and they're, they're hanging out there. And when they got there, they found out that Simon's mother-in-law had a fever. And so, Andrew, Simon, James, and John are thinking to themselves, hey, you know what? Jesus was just over there in the synagogue and cast out this demon. I bet he can do something about this too. And so they went and told him, and he came, and he took her by the hand, he lifted her up, and the fever left her. With one touch, Jesus healed her. His authority over sickness sundown came. I mean, again, they were on, it was a Sabbath, so this was a day of rest. They couldn't get out and do anything. But once the sun goes down, everybody could get back out. And so, um, no doubt, word had spread that day of what Jesus had just done in the synagogue. You know, people begin to talk. Word, news travels fast. Look at what Jesus could do. He, he taught with authority and he exercised this demon. Hey, I have this great idea. Let's bring out all our sick people. Let's bring out all the demon possessed. And let's go and see this Jesus and see what he can do about it. He might be able to heal them too. You know, in that day, everything was sin, right? If you were demon-possessed, it was because of sin. If you were sick, it was because of sin. If you had a disease, it was because of sin. It didn't matter. Everything was sin. Either you sinned, your parents sinned, your friends sinned, your aunt's third cousin's dog sinned. I don't know, but you get kind of, you deal with that. It's sin, right? Um, and so they're thinking, okay, if he can do that with demons, which is far greater, then he can surely do it with the sick too. And so that's what they think, right? 
That's what they do. Verse 33 says that the whole city ends up gathering around the house, probably at the help of Andrew, Simon, James, and John, bringing those who were sick with various diseases or oppressed by demons, right? Now, and I say this, I, I think that it was probably Andrew, Simon, James, and John that kind of drew the crowd around, you know? I mean, what happens when you get excited about something? What happens when a guy gets a new toy, right? He's like always trying to go out and see what he can do. The next best thing, the next best thing, you know? Hey, hey, we did this. Let's, now let's try this. Now let's come over here and let's try this. And we're always trying to up the ante, you know? Like in high school when you had a, a water balloon slingshot or potato gun, you know, you're trying to see how far you can shoot this thing or, you know, what you can shoot it through. I mean, we, don't worry, we didn't break anything. Um, yeah. <laughs> But <laughs> right. But I think that that's what Andrew, Simon, James, and John are doing right here. They're just like, okay, Jesus, you know, drove out this demon. Check. Jesus healed this lady that had a fever. Check. Let's go and see what else he can do. So they go out and they start spreading the word. And hey, hey, you guys, guess what Jesus just did? Just he he, he healed my mother-in-law, man. You got to come check this out. Bring your sick. Bring out your dead. No, just kidding. <laughs> But, but uh, you know, he's just doing all this stuff. And so the, the entire city ends up crowding around the door. They want to see what Jesus can do. Let's see what Jesus can do. And all of a sudden, Jesus has become a spectacle. He's become a form of entertainment. It's not about who he is. It's not about why he came, but about what he's doing. What he can do. Show me your power. Show me your power. Let's see what Jesus can do. And so he's there and he's healing many to the amazement of the crowds. He casts out demons, not permitting them to speak because they knew him. And remember two weeks ago when we talked about Jesus exercising this demon in the synagogue, that they knew him because they were created by him. These demons stood around the throne of God, seeing Jesus in all his heavenly glory before they fell. As angels, before they followed Satan in the rebellion. They knew him. And so he did not permit them to speak. And in so doing, the crowd didn't hear their testimony. <clears throat> did you do this or did I do this? Okay, alright. Jim always threatens to mess up my notes. And so I'm always curious. Okay. Alright. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we saw in verses 21 through 28 that the crowd was amazed by Jesus and what he did, but they lacked fear. They lacked fear in who he truly was. And instead of repenting and believing, instead of leaving everything and following Jesus, Jesus became a spectacle to them, just some form of entertainment. They were awed by his tricks. And as we see, Jesus... Uh, um, we see this continue even as Jesus leaves and he makes his way through Galilee. Drop down to verse 40 through 45. You get this account of Jesus with a leper. And there you see that the crowds end up becoming so thick that a mob actually forces Jesus out into desolate places. He can't even walk through the city streets anymore because he's going to get hounded. And so he has to go live out in the wilderness. And still, people are coming from every quarter to see him. But not everybody got it wrong. Not everybody misinterpreted what Jesus was about. This leper may have had a mixture of faithful and selfish motives. We see in verse 40 that this leper came to Jesus imploring him. It was, he's begging him in desperation. 
and kneeling before him saying, if you will, you can make me clean. This man is coming to Jesus despite the consequences that he could be stoned for his leprosy. And that day, lepers had to stay away from everyone else. Not because people, because they were contagious. Not because people could contract the disease, but because they were religiously unclean. That's why they couldn't come around. They had to wear torn and tattered clothing. And they always had to cover the bottoms of their mouths. And they had to stay off of the roads and out of the cities and distance themselves, living in desolate places. And when they came into contact with someone who wasn't a leper, they had to yell out, unclean, unclean. And again, not because they were contagious, but because they were religiously impure. They didn't want to defile the people. And if they did, they got stoned for it. They were killed. This man came anyway despite the consequences. It says he came begging. He was desperately pleading with Jesus. He fell on his knees before Jesus in homage, saying, I know that you can heal me. I know you have that power. I know you have that authority. He wasn't questioning Jesus' ability, but it all depended upon Jesus' will. If you are willing you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. This is not name it and claim it right here. This is not a matter of faith. Like he had, an, if he just had enough faith, he would be made clean. This is nothing like that. This man's faith is actually realized, and then he knows that Jesus may not be willing to heal him. And Jesus has every right not to. And so he comes pleading to him. Jesus, I know you are able But if you're willing, please heal me. I know that it might be your will to deny my request, but I come to you humbly. I come to you contritely. And Jesus says that, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him. And he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him out at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing, uh, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. Jesus healed him and then sternly warned him. I mean, he rebuked him saying, Hey, don't tell anybody, but go fulfill the requirements of the law to be declared clean. And he did this not because he's mad at the leper, but because this is the lawful thing to do. This is what the leper himself asked for. The leper asked to be clean, right? Religiously clean. He didn't say heal me. He said clean. I want to be clean. And Jesus didn't want to make himself a spectacle for the crowd again. That's why he didn't want this man to tell people. It's because he didn't want the crowds coming around him for the wrong reasons. And here we see that Jesus came to make the unclean clean. Jesus came to do this, not in the eyes of man, but in the eyes of God. He didn't come to put his power on display. He didn't come to appease the will of man. He didn't come to amuse the crowd. This is not about his fame, but to fulfill his will, to fulfill his purposes, to show the people who he is, why he came, and what it really means to follow him. Not to be used as some genie 
in a bottle to give them what they want. That's the way the crowd was treating him. The crowd doesn't get it. Jesus' own disciples don't get it. They want the amusement. They want the outward benefit. Even his disciples want the fame and glory of man, but few actually want Jesus. Few truly recognize his authority. Few come to him in faith in who he is rather than in the hope that they can gain from him. And that gain is really no gain at all because when they do that, they miss the true gift. They glory in the outward blessings, then in the reality, the true gift, which is Jesus himself. Jesus is who we should be seeking. But despite all their, their misunderstandings, despite all their, their misinformation and, and their looking at the wrong things, Jesus continues to show compassion. He still reaches out to them. Look at how Mark describes the manner of these healings, right? Though he need only speak a word and they would be healed, Jesus is much more tender. In verse 31, Jesus heard that Simon's mother-in-law had a fever. And all he needed to do, he didn't have to get up. All he needed to say is like, okay, she's clean. She's healed. Whatever. Have her get up and come in here and serve me. That's all he needed to say. But he didn't do that. It says he got up and he went into her and he touched her. He took her by the hand and he lifted her up. In verses 32 and 34, though it's evening and the sun had already set, and though the crowd had misunderstood him, Jesus, out of love, healed many who were sick and possessed by demons. And when this leper, when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He had compassion on the man, and immediately he reached out and touched this man, this unclean man, and willingly healed him. He wasn't afraid of the leprosy. He wasn't concerned about becoming defiled. He still reached out and touched him, though all he needed to do was speak a word. You see Jesus' intimacy in his touch, his compassion in his touch, his caring in his touch, his loving in his touch. What we see here is that Jesus, he's not desiring fame. He's not attempting to exalt his power, right? He's compassionate. We see that Jesus is a servant. That he's sacrificing himself for the good of others. Even when it would perpetuate the people's misunderstanding. Do you realize that in healing the leper, an outcast, Jesus himself became an outcast? In reaching out to the forsaken, he himself was forsaken? Remember what it said, that, that lepers had to live in desolate places. But when this man came to him and Jesus healed, what happened? The, the news of him spread and Jesus was forced out into the desolate places. He became an outcast. He substituted, he sacrificed himself for this man. Jesus became forsaken in order to save the forsaken. And whether this man disobeyed Jesus or was simply uh, in his joy, overflowing, told others about what Jesus had done, which, by the way, I think it's that one. I do. Um, and I think it's that because, because of the language, right? It, it, I know it says but there in, verses 40, in verse 45, but it's the, it's the lesser adversative, not the greater adversative. 
It could also be translated then. Okay? So I, I, I'm optimistic there. Don't call me a realist or a pessimist here. I'm optimistic here. Um, even so, Jesus became an outcast in order to exchange himself for the outcast. Again, his, his, his intention is not to display his power to heal, but to demonstrate who he really is, that he is authoritative, that he is the Son of God, that he is compassionate, that he is a servant, that he is one that is willing to substitute himself for the outcast and for the forsaken. This is who Jesus is. And that's what's revealed in his power to heal. Right? Not just awe, flash-in-the-pan kind of dramatic miracles, but in the reality of who he is. So Jesus has the power to heal. He has this authority over sickness. And that's obvious. That's the obvious message from this passage. But now for the hidden gems. In verses 35 through 37, second, we see the importance of prayer. You know, Mark must have owned a deli because he loves to make sandwiches. He does. He makes them all the time. They happen. They're, they're everywhere in his gospel. He's called Mark and Sandwiches. And what he does is he takes two things that are really similar and smashed in between it is something that doesn't seem to fit. It's just like a sandwich. you got bread, meat, bread, right? Meat is obviously the one that sticks out. So he's making sandwich. I didn't make up this Mark and Sandwich thing. I made up the deli part. Um, but, do, but he does that all the time. He takes this similar theme story, and then he takes this seemingly unrelated information, and then there's a similar theme story again. And he does this everywhere. I mean, we see it here. I mean, verses 35 through 39 don't seem to fit the theme of 29 through 34 and 40 through 45. We just looked at these accounts on the healings, and, and, and they make sense. They flow together. It, it kind of seems obvious, right? You have Jesus healing, but, but 39 through 35 don't fit. I mean, if you look at it in, in succession, you've got Jesus healing in the midst of the crowd. Then you have Jesus retreating from the crowd in order to pray and preach. And then Jesus healing in the midst of the crowd. Right? And, when, and Mark does this to really give us the meat of the story. The meat is always in the middle. The main thing is always in the middle. Yeah, you can learn stuff from the, from the bread. You know, that's all good and nutritious or whatever. But the meat is there in the middle, right? And again, Mark uses this structure to show us what's most important if we're seeking it. And what I find fascinating is, is Mark actually seems to want to separate his readers between those who just kind of look over it and, and just stand in amazement of the miracles and wonders and those who really dig in to see where the real meat is. To see the true meaning, you know, even in his in his teaching method, he's showing in his writing, he's he's teaching us, his readers, he's showing us what's most important. And in the midst of all this fanfare over Jesus' miracle work, we find Jesus retreating to pray. It says in verse 35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and he went out to a desolate place where he prayed. He's just healed the many. And the whole city of Capernaum has gathered around. They've showed up to watch him, to see what Jesus can do. And what does he do? He takes off. He goes out to pray. And it made me wonder, what effect did Jesus' retreat to pray 
have on his power? What effect did it have for him to get away to, to, uh, to pray? What, what effect did that have on his power to do these signs and wonders and miracles? Did they fuel? Were they fueled by his prayer life? We know that throughout Scripture, authority, strength, and power come from God alone. And I think that Jesus in his humanity here is teaching us about the importance of prayer in order to be empowered by God. And I, not obviously not empowered in the same way, but empowered, none the same. And I think another reason is because, uh, the reason why I think that is because this is not the only time that Jesus does this, right? There's another time where, where his divine power is put on display and it's, and sandwiched in between that is prayer. Do you know where it is? So Mark chapter 6, Jesus heals the, or he feeds the 5,000. He miraculously provides this meal to feed 5,000 men. That's not including women and children. And then he goes and he takes his disciples, he puts them on a boat, he sends them across the Sea of Galilee, and then he goes up onto the mountain to pray. And then later that night, he meets up with his disciples, not by just walking across to the other side, but by walking across the water. So sandwiched in between the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water is Jesus praying, right? Now, I'm not suggesting that we would have the same sort of abilities if we prayed more. And that's not what I'm getting at. I mean, I don't think that Jesus is praying to recharge his miracle mojo here, okay? He's not praying to get, God, to get power from God so that he could do whatever he wanted to do. He prayed for the power to do God's will. He prayed for protection from temptation to receive the fame and the glory and the honor from men rather than from seeking it from God. Jesus prayed so that he might persist in his purposes, which was not to perform signs and wonders, but to reveal who he is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. That's Jesus' purpose. His disciples didn't get that. They, like the crowd, just wanted an encore. And so while Jesus is out there in verse 35 praying, we see in verse 36 and 37 that they wouldn't leave Jesus to his father's business. Instead, it says, Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. The next day, I mean, everybody's crowding back around again. They want to see the next miracle. You know, like, hey, what's Jesus going to do next? I can't wait to see. And so, you know, the disciples are sitting there like, "Uh, we better go get him, you know. We've we got to get back over here. And, hey, Jesus, this is kind of cool. We didn't really expect all this, but, you know, everybody's at my house. Yeah, this is cool, right? I dig this. I'm liking this. And this is funny because just a few days earlier, they started off right. They started off by leaving everything to follow Jesus, and now already they're tempted by the fame of man, by fanfare, by the glory of men. They're already turning away, right? They're already missing the point. The reality is they too should have been praying. They too should have been seeking the will of God. They too should have been holding fast to to Jesus' purposes. But instead they were by nature given over to man's. And if we fail to pray, we'll do the same thing. This is the amazing thing about prayer. We don't pray to God to get him to bend his will to ours, to get him to do what we want him to do. In prayer, we are conformed to God's will. We seek His face. We seek to know what He wants from us. And then we follow in that. We are conformed. We're transformed. Not the other way around. 
We can't do anything of worth without pursuing a relationship with the Father. And that comes through prayer. James Edwards says, Jesus did not extend himself outward in compassion without first attending to the source of his mission and the purpose of his Father. And he does this through prayer. And so how much more should we should it be the case for us than for the Son of God? How much more should it be the case for us? I mean, this is why I see our prayer ministry as being so vital to the success of our church. If we're really going to be about something, let's be about prayer. Yeah, I just have to say I'm thankful for Keith. I'm thankful for Mike. I'm thankful for Joe, for these guys who are really trying to get this thing up and going. And I'm asking you guys to, to get involved in prayer. This is not a waste of time. I know that we like to be busy with our hands, but really we need to be engaging our minds and seeking the face of God. It's essential to the success of our ministry. So I hope that you guys will find ways to get involved in it. I mean, without a relationship with God through prayer, what we're doing today is simply looking at a book. Do you realize that? We're just looking at a book. We're talking about what it means and, yeah, whatever. But the truth of Scripture is not applied into our hearts until we give ourselves over to seeking the face of God to develop our relationship with Him through prayer. The power of Scripture is fueled through prayer, not apart from it. Right? We might stand in amazement for a little bit, but the only way it's really going to be driven into our hearts so the law of God is written upon our hearts is through prayer. So we need to be about that. And the fact is that Jesus is still doing that. He is interceding for us. He is meditating, or, or He is our mediator. He is mediating for us. And so we must be a praying people. But conversely, Jesus' oneness with the Father through prayer compels Him outward in mission. It doesn't just sit there. Right? It's not just all inward, but it drives outward. We see third in verses 38 through 39 that Jesus' purpose was to preach. He didn't just go up and pray. It wasn't a monastic sort of life. It was giving itself over to the mission of God through preaching. It says that after Jesus' disciples came looking for him, Jesus responded to their request to go back to the crowds by actually going the other way. It says, let's go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. We often think that bigger is better, right? The crowds are a good thing. We just need to get, get everybody gathered together. We've got to do what we can to, to excite them, to entice them, to get them to come. We've got to perform for them. We've got to do all this stuff. But Jesus can be more different. He didn't care about those things. He had a crowd right there in Capernaum. The whole city was gathered around. I mean, what more do you want? You would think that, based on our our mindset, that's where you need to go. That's what you need to do. You've already got these people gathered together. Now preach to them. But no, Jesus goes the other way. He goes completely the other direction. Because Jesus isn't concerned about fame. He doesn't care about his performance. He doesn't want to amuse them. He's not, he's not concerned about their entertainment. He's concerned about the message. It's the message that matters to him. His desire was to bring it to those who would truly hear it. Not those who are just caught up in all the excitement. 
Jesus cares about the gospel. Not a show and not crowds. That's why he up and left it all behind. Jesus knew that the real transforming power is not in the ability to heal. You know what happened to everybody that Jesus healed? They died, right? But real transforming power comes to the message in receiving the kingdom of God, of being restored to God. Though, Despite that we're sinners, despite the fact that we've rebelled against God, that Jesus, and through preaching the gospel, we might hear and repent and believe and be saved. That's what it's about. That's what Jesus is concerned with. And he knows that the crowd won't hear it. That they're too caught up in all the wrong things. They're amazed in all the wrong things. And so he goes out because his concern is for the message. His priority is is through the proclamation of the gospel because that's where real transformation occurs. And here we learn about what our priorities ought to be. If Jesus' priorities ought to be our priorities, not a concern over a large number. I know that people are wigged out by the fact that we're a church plant, and look, we're small, we meet in a hotel, we don't have a building, what do we do? This is not what I know. We don't have all these, these fancy programs for our kids, and slides, and bells, and whistles, and everything's real pristine, you can't even get your notes right. What are you talking about? You know, we got the PowerPoint sending down in the middle. Like, what's going on here? But that's not what it's about. It's not what it's about. It's about the message, the gospel message. That's where transforming power occurs. We need to be concerned, like Jesus, about preaching the gospel. Jesus came to make the unclean clean by living a perfect life, and by sacrificing that life for sin, so that those who might receive him by repentance and faith might receive his righteousness. His perfect righteousness might be attributed to them, and they might be eternally restored to God. He rose again to show that God's wrath against sin had been satisfied, to prove that He Himself is the Son of God, and that all people, both the living and the dead, will stand before Him in judgment. And it's those who have heard, it's those who believe, it's those who have repented, it's those who have left everything to follow Him, who listen to the gospel message, who receive the gospel message, that will be saved. That we'll have eternal life. That and that alone. Not by those who go and attend spectacles. Not by those who gather around and perform their religious duties and are faithful to the law. But by those who by grace have been saved. That's what it's about. And when we truly get that, when our lives are truly touched by Jesus, it changes everything. Those that know the truth, that really know the truth and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, by nature, serve and proclaim their king. And we see that too in this passage. The natural response for those who have been touched by Jesus is to do what Jesus does. Right? Jesus had been compassionately serving in Capernaum. He'd been healing and exercising demons. And what what do we see Simon's mother-in-law doing immediately after she was touched by Jesus? So she got up and served him. When this leper was healed, 
though he received instructions to tell no one of what had happened, but to make his offering before the priest. Verse 45 says that he went out and began to freely spread the news. Overwhelmed by his joy, he could not help but tell others about what Jesus had done. He was moved by it. And again, I don't think that he was disobeying or disregarding Christ's commands. I just think that he couldn't help but tell others about Jesus. He was overwhelmed with his response of joy. And the immediate reaction of both Simon's mother-in-law and this leper was to serve Jesus. One through deeds and the other through proclamation. And we need both. Another reason I think that that they're distinct is because they're set apart. They're set apart from the crowds. They're set apart from the whole city of Capernaum. They're set apart from the many who received healing and, and who, who Jesus cast demons out of them. They're set apart, and it tells what they did in response, right? They, it makes a distinction between them and everyone else. Those who were touched by Jesus in their joy want to serve Him. They want to proclaim Him. So let me ask you. I know that there are many in this room that profess to have been touched by Jesus. Not to be healed in some miraculous way, but have received the miraculous gift of salvation by the grace of God for salvation. Most of you would say that. But let me ask you, where's your joy? How is that turning into an overwhelming desire to serve? To give your life? To to obey, to do deeds that, that are consistent with the gospel, to, to proclaim your joy in Jesus to other people. Where is that? And if you don't have that, what's missing? There may be some of you who have never been touched by Jesus. But you stand as an outcast. As you feel forsaken. And you are forsaken by God. Jesus here promises in his compassion, in his servant-heartedness, that he has given his life as a substitute. He's willing to become an outcast for the outcast. He's willing to be forsaken for you. He can do it. He did do it. He is able. And he is willing. So will you respond to that? Will you receive that? Will you be touched by Jesus? I hope you will. He's willing and He's able. So come and doubt no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that for Your Word. We thank You that You have come to seek and to save the lost. And that You've done that through Your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray for forgiveness in, in areas where we seek amazement, we seek wonder in all the wrong things rather than placing our hope in who Jesus is and why he came and that we seek to follow him in joy, serving and proclaiming him. God, I pray for our, all our hearts that we might see Jesus and we might respond to Jesus. God, when we sing that song, 10,000 Charms, that doesn't mean that Jesus has the power of incantations, that he can do 10,000 miracles and wonders and, and, and hocus-pocus kind of things, but, but it means that Jesus has 10,000 virtues, that he's complete in his, in his 
perfection in his being, in his nature, in his character. God, I pray that we would stand in awe, not at the wonders of what he does. Those are amazing things, and they, they testify to who he really is. May we be caught up and enamored with Jesus as the king over all things, including you and including me. I'm going to pray that we don't sit on this. That we will, like like Simon's mother-in-law or like that leper, get up and immediately serve to respond in joy and to accept Christ as our King. It's in His name we pray. Amen.